All right. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, Today, we are going to kick off a brand new series uh, through the wonderful New Testament letter known as the book of Ephesians. Um, We hope that, uh, you know, the last six or seven weeks or so, we went through an apologetic series where we uh, wrestled with some of the tough questions that deal with the Bible itself. Um, But today we're jumping back into a book of the Bible, and I'm really excited about this series. This is one of my uh, favorite books in the New Testament, and I think it's going to have a profound impact on your life as we study it here over the next several months. But as we start off here, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this, have you ever noticed that encountering something beautiful evokes in us as humans a response? And often that response is something verbal or something that's spoken out loud. Um, Exactly one year ago this week, uh, my wife Faith and I were in uh, the city of Colorado Springs on an anniversary trip. And it was the first time that either one of us had spent any time in uh, real mountains, right? Like we had been to West Virginia and Tennessee and the Carolinas, but, but those mountains, if you can call them that, are like anthills compared to the mountains that we see out west. And so because of that, we were really excited and it was a, a really special and unique trip for us. And one of the things that was interesting while we were out there that I wasn't necessarily anticipating is that uh, whether it was when we were hiking in the Garden of the Gods, which was right next door to where we were staying, or whether it was the day that we uh, drove up all 14,000 feet of Pikes Peak in our car and felt like we were about to just drop off the edge, um, or some of the other really beautiful places that we got to see while we were there, what happened is that over and over again, as Faith and I encountered beauty and wonder at all of the things we were seeing, All we could do in response was we kept saying to each other, and it kind of felt silly after a while because we had said it so often, but we just kept saying things like, wow, can you believe this? I I, I cannot believe that this exists, that this is real. See, again, the reason we did this is because true beauty and true wonder stirs in us a response. Right? Like whether it's looking at amazing mountains out west or a sunset over the ocean or a newborn baby or a bride walking down the aisle, you and I, we are compelled and we are moved to respond to beauty. In other words, you can think about it this way, beauty elicits praise. And as we kick off our study in the book of Ephesians today, what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul, as he begins this letter, he does so by pouring out one of the greatest, most amazing sentences of all time. It also happens to be one of the longest of all time, but we'll talk more about that in a second. And the thing that's so crazy about this sentence is that Paul writes it while being in prison. Like literally chained to a prison guard, Paul writes this amazing uh, declaration of praise. As Paul meditates on the riches of the gospel and on the blessings that you and I have in Jesus, he is so moved by the beauty and the wonder of it that he is compelled to respond with praise. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you now to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. It's on page 976 uh, 976, uh, in our pew Bibles. Wow. I don't know if I can recover. Um, And what you find there, go ahead and uh, stand as I read today's passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, would be, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do, as we've already sang, we invite the Holy Spirit to come today. He is welcome here. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know and to respond to your word. And so we dedicate this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Now, as we kick off this series and and begin today, I'm not going to do a lot of background to the book because I want to spend the bulk of my time this morning looking at verses 3 to 14. But let me just share with you now a couple things that might be helpful to know in terms of background and introduction. So as I already mentioned, uh, Paul, uh, one of the important things to know is that Paul wrote this letter while being in prison, uh, most likely in the city of Rome. Um, In other words, this was most likely written sometime uh, after the book of Acts ends with Paul arrested in Rome. Now, in terms of dating or timing, most scholars think that the book was written somewhere in the early 60s AD. Uh, We don't know the exact year or the exact date, but somewhere in that time range. Now, if we look at the text itself, verse 1 tells us that it was written by the Apostle Paul and that it was addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, depending what English translation you have in front of you, uh, you might see there that, that there's a footnote that mentions that the words in Ephesus are not found in a couple of the earliest manuscripts that we have available to us. Now, we could go down a whole rabbit trail and, uh, you know, talk about that and get super sidetracked, but, but I'm not sure it'd be all that helpful for us to do that this morning. And so instead, let's just go ahead and assume, uh, as most scholars do, that this letter was in fact written to the churches in the city of Ephesus. Now, in terms of the city of Ephesus itself, it was uh, in Asia Minor, what is today uh, is known as modern day Turkey. It was a major port city. It was right on the coast on the Aegean Sea. And so because of that, there was a ton of trade and commerce that flowed through the city. As well, though, it was uh, famous for having one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis. 
So in terms of, you know, things like business and culture and even religion, Ephesus was one of the most important cities in that part of the Roman Empire. Um, if you want to do some uh, extra credit this week or if you find yourself with some extra time and you want to dig into this some more, you can read about the founding of this church or the churches in Ephesus in the book of Acts in chapter 19. And it's, a, it's an amazing chapter, you know, there's this massive riot that breaks out as a result of the gospel coming into the city. And, and it certainly, uh, that, that chapter highlights the power of the gospel to disrupt and to influence uh, a city and a culture. And so, again, if you want to dig around and do some more research, you can do that later this week. But for now, let's move on from background and, and introduction and get into the letter itself. Now, after starting off with some initial uh, introduction and greetings, we see here that Paul, starting in verse 3, launches into, as I said earlier, one of the most amazing and complicated sentences of all time. You see, actually, in the original Greek, this section, uh, verses 3 to 14, is one long, continuous sentence containing 202 words. Thankfully, our English translators, uh, they do put in punctuation and break it up. But again, keep in mind here that this is one long sentence. I know you English majors or English teachers out there are having some heart palpitations, right? Like, can you imagine if a student turned in a paper with a sentence with 202 words? It'd be like, you might as well write your own F on that paper, right? Um, I don't technically remember the definition of a run-on sentence, but I would have to think this is probably one of them. And not only is it one sentence, but it's also one of the most dense and theologically rich and intense passages in the Bible. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's a little bit like trying to read the fine print on a legal document, right? Like if you're not careful, your eyes can kind of glaze over and you can get a little bit lost in the density. And there's a lot of big, complicated words used throughout it. And so because of that, I, I, you know, I need you, to, you guys to put your thinking caps on this morning. I need you to you know, take an extra sip of coffee or whatever you got to do to try to stay with me. And hopefully the way that I've broken this down with our outline will help us not get too lost here. But let's go ahead and jump in now and read again verse 3. Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as we just read that verse, I'm not sure what all jumps out to you about it, but one thing that should have stood out was the word blessed or blessing is used three different times. Again, Paul says, blessed be God the Father. Why? Well, because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we are to bless God because God has blessed us. John Stott, in his uh, well-known commentary on the book of Ephesians, he said this, Paul begins by blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing, right? So what we see here is that Paul starts off with a bang, and actually what he's doing in this section is, is he's giving a type of eulogy, or what in the Hebrew or Old Testament was known as a baraka. Now look, don't be afraid, just because I use the word eulogy, that doesn't mean that Frederick Nietzsche was right. God is not dead, he is very much alive, and so even though Paul is giving a eulogy, he is not writing this for God's funeral, no. In fact, the word eulogy, all it means is good words. 
You in Greek means good, and logos means words. And so again, the idea here is that Paul is writing a eulogy which blesses and praises God for who he is and what he has done for us. Another way I think that's maybe helpful to think about this section, uh, verses 3 to 14, it's almost like a kind of poem or, or, or a song, if you will, that is very creatively describing for us the blessings that we have in God and therefore why you and I should respond with praise. Now, in terms of the last part of verse three here, I'm not sure what comes to your mind as you uh, hear the words, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But what most scholars argue is that the phrase, every spiritual blessing, um, it would be better translated as every blessing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they are not spiritual blessings in the sense that they are, uh, <clears throat> you know, necessarily only spiritual rather than material. No, instead, they are spiritual blessings in the sense that they come from or they are applied by the Holy Spirit himself. And so when you realize that, what we see here in verse 3 is that all three members of the Trinity are represented. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but most commentators suggest that verse 3 works as a kind of summary statement. Or another way to think about it is that verse 3 is like a thesis statement for the rest of the passage. And the point that I think Paul is wanting to emphasize and to celebrate here is that all three members of the Godhead are intimately involved in blessing us through the salvation process. And so in terms of working through an outline now for the rest of the passage, what I want to do, <clears throat> excuse me, is I want to look at seven blessings that Paul lays out for us in this section. And again, as I just said, these seven blessings, they all involve all three members of the Trinity. I might originally thought of breaking this down by looking at the Father's plan and the Son's provision and the Spirit's power, but instead I thought it'd be a little more helpful just to list and to lay out these seven blessings here. But, but even still, I want you to pay attention and to realize that all three members of the Trinity are intimately involved in this work. And so let's jump back in here with the first blessing. And so look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so the first blessing that Paul draws out here in verse 4, and let me warn you, it's a doozy. You and I have been chosen by God. You see, Paul in verse three has just said that you and I are to bless God because he has blessed us. And the first blessing that he mentions is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now this idea of being chosen is what theologians have called the doctrine of election. And if you've studied it before, you'll know that it's a fairly complex and complicated doctrine. In fact, there has been strong disagreement in the church for dozens and dozens of centuries as to what exactly uh, does this or does this not mean. I mean, whole churches and denominations have divided themselves over this issue. And so because of that, we could spend the rest of our time talking this morning and trying to figure it all out. Uh, but again, I'm just not sure that would be all that helpful. If the church hasn't totally figured this out in 2,000 years, I'm not sure we're going to figure it out in the next 30 minutes. 
Instead, what I want to do is I want to focus on what I think the text itself focuses on. And that is this, this idea of being elected or chosen by God, it is an incredible blessing. It is truly something that you and I are to celebrate and to praise God for. However, though, as we see here in the text, it is also something that carries with it weight and responsibility. You see, again, this idea of being chosen and and, and elected by God, it should cause us as believers to be full of joy, to be full of confidence. You see, this verse tells us in a very unqualified way that God in eternity past, before he even created the world, that he had you and he had me in his heart and in his mind. And because of the overflow of his goodness and the overflow of his grace, he wanted us for himself. You see, you may have been skipped or picked last every time on recess whenever the teams were getting picked, right? But in Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by God the Father. And again, that truth, that reality should fill you with all kinds of joy and peace and hope. You are chosen. Now look, I said a minute ago that this blessing comes with it responsibility. You see, we were not just chosen just to be chosen, we were chosen for a purpose. And according to the passage, the reason we were chosen was so that we would be holy and blameless before him. You see, one of the things we see throughout the Bible is that God is in the business of gathering a people to himself. In the Old Testament, the people of God were known as the Israelites. And in the New Testament, they're called the church. Or as Paul, when he introduces this letter, he says to the saints. Now that word saints simply means holy ones or set apart ones. And so again, this idea of being chosen, uh, the goal of it is that you and I would be set apart. We would be holy and blameless before him. When we look throughout the New Testament, we find that, that positionally in Jesus, you and I are made holy through his death on the cross. And so when God looks down from heaven, he sees uh, us as holy because he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. However, though, there's also this reality that you and I are to increase in practical holiness throughout our Christian lives as we grow and mature in him. This is what is called progressive sanctification. And so again, the goal of election is that we would in fact be holy and blameless before him. Now, again, there's a lot more that we could say about this. If you uh, want to study this doctrine some more on your own, you can look at some of the main views around the doctrine of election. Uh, There's the Reformed or the the Calvinist view. There's the Arminian or Wesleyan view. And then another one you may be less familiar with, but which I think also brings up some helpful points, is the corporate election view. And so, again, it would take months for us to study all of that. If you want to go deeper, you can look at those views on your own. And so these are the main views when it comes to trying to understand this doctrine of election. But, but either way, as I said, regardless of where you land, if your view does not lead you to celebrate and to praise God for it, then it's probably not the correct view. And the reason I say that is because it seems to be, uh, as we read Paul here, that as he thinks about this idea of election, he is overwhelmed with praise and blessing towards God. And so this is the first blessing that we see here. 
The second blessing we see here in verse five, it says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons <clears throat> through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So not only are we chosen in Christ, but here we see the second blessing, and that is this, we are adopted as sons and daughters. You see, God didn't choose us to be slaves, soldiers, or students. He chose us to be sons. God doesn't want just a generic group of people, but rather he is wanting and he desires a family for himself. I love so much what uh, theologian J.I. Packer in his amazing book, Knowing God, writes about this truth of adoption. He says this, some textbooks on Christian doctrine treat adoption as a mere subsection of justification, but this is inadequate. The two ideas are distinct and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve. Because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This gift of uh, this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. An idea at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But in contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Now catch this, listen to what he says. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. See, I don't know about you, but I, I used to really struggle to believe that God truly loved me. And not just that he truly loved me, but that he liked me and enjoyed me. Like the thought that, you know, I brought God pleasure never really seemed that realistic to me. I can see, you know, maybe others, this is true for others, you know, especially those who do really big things for God, you know, the missionary who sells everything and goes to Africa. I can see how God would love that person, but not me. And sometimes I would think to myself, well, you know what, I, I could see how God could love a future version of me. Like maybe God could love the, the Nick Carruthers 20 years from now when I have, you know, theoretically my life together. But certainly not right now, the, the current version of me. I don't know if any of you can relate to a thought like that or have felt that way before. But for me, one of the single greatest things that happened in my life that, that began to help me to overcome some of those lies, and those are lies if you feel that way, was when my wife and I had our first child. You know, it's funny, I remember before we had our, our first uh, child, my wife was actually worried um, that she might not love him. Uh, like, like, she's like, well, what happens like if he comes out and like, I just feel nothing towards him, you know? I'm like, I think that's impossible. Like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's impossible. And again, it was, you know, if you're a parent out there, you're, that probably sounds ridiculous, but it, for her, it was a legitimate fear and something that she was stressing about. However, though, for her and I both, the moment that that little guy came out, we were flooded with love for him. 
And the crazy thing is, is that he had done nothing to earn that love. Right? In fact, it took him a very long time, and sometimes we still wonder um, if he's done anything to give back to us, right? <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. I know. I, I see you right there. Um, <laughs> right? But think about that. When a baby is born, I mean, it's like they're, they're, they, they just are needy, right? I mean, you know, it's like they're totally selfish. Like, they don't, they don't give a rip about you. Like, they just want what they want. They make demands on us. But guess what? When I looked at that little baby, I didn't say to myself, you know what? He's kind of a mess right now. He cries all the time. He poops his pants. He keeps me up at night. But one day he'll be better. One day he'll be a productive human being. And so because of that, I can love him now for the person that he'll one day become. No, I I did not do that. And listen to me. God does not do that to you. God does not think of us or treat us that way. You see, I loved my son simply because he was mine. And God loves you simply because you are his. There's this amazing verse in Deuteronomy 7 where uh, God is talking to the Israelites and he's like, look, I didn't pick you or choose you because you were the greatest or, you know, you, you were the biggest group out there. No, I chose you and I love you because I love you. And again, it's this idea that, that you're mine, that I chose you, that I adopted you, and my affection towards you is simply because I love you. Um, all week long, as I've thought about this uh, particular blessing of adoption, I was reminded of a, a picture I saw years ago of one of my cousins who uh, uh, went through the adoption process. And they went through the foster care system, and if you're familiar with that, it can often be a long and, and painful process. And so after a couple years of, of waiting to be able to officially adopt this little uh, boy into their family, there's uh, this picture uh, where they're in the courtroom where the judge has just declared that this little boy is now part of my cousin's family. And, and the picture is, is them, again, they're in the courtroom and my cousin and his wife are, are around him and the little boy's got a sign in front of him with their last name on it and it says, I'm a Tony. And I just love that picture, and I love imagining you and imagining me standing, you know, with the Trinity around us and a little sign that says, I belong. I've been adopted into the family of God. This is a powerful truth. You see, the thing is, is, you know, my cousin didn't adopt this little boy because he had to or because he was forced to, but rather he adopted him because it was his pleasure and his joy to do it. And in the same way, Paul tells us here that in love, out of God's love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, that last little phrase there, I'm not totally sure the ESV gets it exactly right. In fact, most English translations say something like, as the NASB does, according to the kind intention of his will, or others say, according to the good pleasure of his will. And again, the point there of of Paul saying that is that like my cousin, God intentionally and very joyfully adopted you into his family. He didn't begrudgingly adopt you. It was his joy. It brought him pleasure. It was out of the kind intention of his will. Again, just like the blessing of election, this truth, this reality of adoption should fill you with all kinds of joy and peace and confidence. But it should also, as it says here in verse 6, cause you to praise his glorious grace. 
Now, Paul is going to go on and say something like that two more times in this section, and we'll talk some more about that at the end. But for now, let's go to that next blessing that Paul mentions. Look again at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, so in this one verse, Paul actually mentions two more blessings that are ours, and they are closely related. The third blessing that Paul mentions here is that we are redeemed. We have redemption. You see, in the Bible, the word redeemed or redemption, it has to do with being delivered or freed from the bondage of slavery. In the Old Testament, the greatest picture of being delivered from slavery is when God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And ultimately, we know that that was a, meant to be a picture or an illustration of Jesus coming to redeem us from the slavery we have to sin. So what we see here is that one of the main blessings of being in Christ or in Him, as it says at the beginning of verse 7, is that you and I are no longer held captive or enslaved to sin. In other words, because of Jesus, you and I are free from the power of sin over our lives. Now to be clear, you and I will still need to every day fight and resist sin in this life. However, though, unlike before we were in Christ, you and I can actually do that now. Like we can actually resist sin and choose to do the right thing. But not only do we have this blessing of redemption in Jesus, we see here a fourth blessing, and that is this, we are forgiven. Now again, redemption and forgiveness are closely related, but they are technically different. According to James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, Although they are closely linked, forgiveness of sins is something different from redemption. Redemption means freed from sin's power so that it no longer rules over us. Forgiveness means, God, uh, means having God wipe the slate clean. Another way you could think about this or another way you could say it is that redemption frees us from the power of sin, but forgiveness frees us from the penalty of sin. And according to verse 7, both of these are as a result of being in Christ, and they are accomplished through his shed blood. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more thankful I am for this blessing of forgiveness. And maybe it's just because as you get older, you, you really start to see all of the sin that's accumulated in your life as the decades roll on, right? Like when you're 10, it's like, you know, yeah, I've done some bad things, but when you're 37 or 57 or 77, it's like, man, that's, that's a lot of debt. And I'm really thankful that Jesus through his blood has paid for my debt, has forgiven my sin. I think, I think another reason why I think a lot about it lately is I've really come to understand just how much I struggle with perfectionism. And the thing that really stinks about perfectionism is that you have this really strong desire to do the right thing and to do everything just right, just perfect, the first time, every time. And yet the reality is you can't and you don't. And so because of that, uh, a perfectionist can really have their failures and their shortcomings haunt them. And they can really struggle with condemnation if they don't lean into and understand the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And so because this is something that I struggle with, I've had to over and over again remind myself of the power of the gospel and of the good news that because of Jesus and because of his blood, I am forgiven. I am redeemed 
from slavery to sin, and I am forgiven. And so these are the third and the fourth blessings that Paul lists for us here. Let's go to the fifth blessing, which is, again, look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, there are probably a, a number of different ways you could uh, describe this blessing, but, but the basic idea is that in Christ, you and I have been blessed because we have been enlightened. You see, Paul goes from talking about redemption and forgiveness to talking about how God in his wisdom and in his grace, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, which Paul describes here as the plan to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in and under Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, later on in the book of Ephesians, is going to talk some more about the mystery that has been revealed through the gospel and how it includes both Jews and Gentiles coming together as one family. And we'll go deeper into that later on in this series. But, but for now, the point that I think Paul is making here is that one of the blessings that you and I receive by being in Christ is that God has revealed to us his ultimate plan for the world. You see, when you and I, when we look at the world right now, all we see is lots of chaos and confusion and disunity. And if we're not careful, it can sometimes feel like there's no plan, right? Like things are just completely out of control and we're headed for total and utter destruction as a human race and as a planet, right? Like if we just took God out of the equation, it looks like we are either headed towards some sort of natural disaster, either through, you know, an asteroid hitting the earth or climate change or the sun burning out or famine or something else like that. Or if that didn't take us out, it looks like we're headed towards destruction through something like war or violence. And yet, according to Paul, God is involved. He does have a plan. And in Jesus, he has revealed that plan to us. And the ultimate plan is that God is going to unite all things in heaven and all things on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, right now, the reality is, is that there is disunity. There is rebellion both here on earth and in the heavenly realms, which we'll talk about more in chapter 6. But the point here is that you and I don't need to worry about that or to be fearful. Because as we've already said, God is going to fix all of that and he is going to accomplish this work of uniting all things, both in heaven and on earth, under Jesus Christ. And so this too here is another wonderful blessing that you and I have. Let's go to a sixth blessing that we see in the passage. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we too were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." The sixth blessing that Paul lists for us here is that you and I, we have been, or we have an inheritance. Now, in some ways, this one here is a little bit tricky. 
And the reason for that is because uh, both in verse 11 and in verse 14, when it talks about us having an inheritance, um, scholars are divided as, as to who exactly this inheritance belongs to. In other words, is Paul saying that as believers we have an inheritance, or is he saying that uh, Christians are God's inheritance? See the difference? Like, like, do we have an inheritance or does God have an inheritance? And the reason for that is because apparently the way this is worded in the Greek makes it very difficult to know exactly who and what is being communicated here. Now, some scholars have noted that perhaps the reason this is vague and is maybe not as clear as it could be is because regardless, the implications are still the same. What I mean by that is that if the passage is in fact saying that we as believers are the one with the inheritance, I think the question that we would naturally ask ourselves is, well, what is it? What is the inheritance? Well, I think the Bible makes it clear that our inheritance is God himself. Our inheritance is having communion and connection to the Godhead. If, however, the passage is thought the other way around and the inheritance being talked about here is God's inheritance, well, again, the question we need to ask is, well, what is God's inheritance? Well, again, according to the Bible, God's inheritance is us, his people. We are his portion, his possession. See, either way, we are God's inheritance and he is ours. Um, years ago, uh, Pastor John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. And the big idea or the main idea of the book is that the good news of the gospel is that in the end, we get God himself. In other words, all of the other blessings and all the other benefits of the gospel, they are good and they are necessary and they are right, whether it be you know, forgiveness or justification or anything else. But the ultimate purpose or the ultimate end or the, the highest good of the gospel is getting God and it's being connected to him. And so again, whether Paul is saying here, we have an inheritance or God has an inheritance, the result is still the same. We get God and God gets us, which I think he gets the raw end of the deal, but you know, that we're thankful, right? Let's move on. Let's go to that last blessing that we see here in the passage. And we've already read it, but look again at verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so the seventh and final blessing that we see listed here in this passage is that in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul says here in verse 13 that when we heard the gospel and when we believed it, that at that moment we were sealed with the Spirit of God. And so what does it mean that you and I are sealed with the Spirit? Well, I think there's a number of ways that you could talk about that, and there's a number of things that it means, but I really liked how uh, Pastor John Tyson in New York City put it. He said, being sealed by the Spirit means at least these four things, security, ownership, authenticity, and authority. You see, in the ancient world, wealthy people and rulers, they would put their own personal seal on their significant documents or letters or, or even on their possessions. And in doing so, that seal let everyone know who those things belong to. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, he would come on to individuals for a time, but then he would inevitably leave them because of their disobedience. We see that in the life of King Saul, 
We see it in the life of Samson in the book of Judges. We even see it with the temple, right? Like, like in, in Ezekiel, uh, as the exile is happening, the Spirit of God leaves the temple. And yet the promise of being sealed in the New Testament means that the Spirit of God will now never leave us or forsake us. Because we are sealed by the Spirit, you and I can have assurance and we can have security that God will complete the work that he has started with us. As it says in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will finish the work that he has started and being sealed by the Spirit is what offers us that security and that assurance. But not only does being sealed bring us security, it also denotes ownership or possession. See, again, when a Roman leader would put their seal on their documents or on their possessions, it would deter someone from stealing it. But not only that, it would also, as I said earlier, let everyone know who uh, these things belong to. And in the same way, when God the Father put his spirit in us and sealed us with the spirit, it told the world and it told even those beings in the heavenly realm who you and I belong to. In fact, according to verse 14, the spirit is the guarantee or some translations say he is the down payment of our inheritance. Now, again, that could be talking about us being God's inheritance, but either way, the spirit is what marks us out as his possession. You see, according to the Bible, the spirit of God is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. We are to be a people of the presence. You know, a couple uh, weeks ago, I was uh, spending a, an extended time of prayer with the Lord. I had gone down to Clear Creek Metro Park down near Hocking Hills. It's one of my favorite places to go just to get away and to spend some time with the Lord. And, and uh, so at one point, I just sort of sat down with my Bible open. And, and I just felt like the Lord was prompting me to uh, read uh, Exodus, Exodus 33 and 34. And it's a passage that I've read many times. It's, it's uh, over the last several years become very dear to me. And in chapter 33, uh, Moses is very frustrated. This is right after the people have built and worshiped the golden calf. And, and so again, he's frustrated. He's like, how, how is all this gonna work out? And in, and in verse 12 of chapter 33, Moses says this to the Lord. And I just love this so much. He says, Lord, you say to me, bring this people, but you have not told me or let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, Lord, that, that this is your people. Right? Like Moses is like, God, they're not just, they're not, I didn't pick them. You picked them. They're your people. And then, and then it says, and the Lord said to him, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. What is Moses saying there? He's saying, Lord, how will people know that we belong to you? How will people know that you're for us and not against us? Well, they'll know because your presence goes with us. And, and, and Moses is like, look, Lord, I am not going up if your presence doesn't go with us. 
God's spirit and God's presence in and among us is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And that reality is also, it gives way to another aspect of being sealed, and that is authenticity. How do we know who is and who isn't a true believer in Jesus? But one of the things that you can look at and one of the questions you can ask is, is there fruit and is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life? In other words, is there that, that distinguishing mark, that sense of authenticity, that sense that this is the real thing, that, that only the Spirit of God could produce that kind of fruit and blessing in someone's life? And so because of that, you can be assured, you can know that that person does in fact know the Lord. And so that's another aspect of being sealed. The last thing being sealed means is that you and I now, because of this, have authority. Because we are in Christ and have been sealed by the Spirit, we now carry with us the authority that comes from God. Like a police officer whose badge represents and gives them the authority that they carry, the Holy Spirit in us gives us authority in the spiritual realm. You see, I said earlier that being sealed marks us as his possession and that because of that, those, those spiritual beings in the heavenly realms must recognize who we belong to. But not only must they recognize, but they must also submit to our authority in Christ. And so again, being sealed by the Spirit, it is a wonderful blessing. It means we have security. It means we have uh, ownership or we are owned by the Lord. And there's an authenticity and authority. And so these are the seven blessings that Paul lays out for us in this opening chapter in the book of Ephesians. We have been chosen. We have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been enlightened. We have an inheritance. And we have been sealed by the Spirit. And so to close here, I just want to end by asking two really important questions. And the two questions are this. Who are these blessings for? And how are we to respond to them? And so starting with the first question here, who are these blessings for? I'm sure as we've gone through this passage today, you'll have picked up on a phrase that Paul repeats over and over again. And the phrase that he just could not stop saying is in Christ. And the reason for that is because the only way that one is uh, in Christ, uh, only if one is in Christ, do they receive these blessings. According to uh, commentator Peter O'Brien, he put it this way. He said, the phrase in Christ together with its variants in him and in whom occurs 11 times in the paragraph. This constantly repeated formula has an essential function in the eulogy which surveys the whole of God's redemptive plan. It is in Christ alone that God has blessed men and women from eternity to eternity. See, again, the reality is this, that these amazing blessings that we just spent 40 or so minutes looking at, they are not applied to any and everyone. They are only for those men and women who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And so a really important follow-up question to this is, are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus personally? Have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? If the answer to that question is no, then I just want to urge you this morning to not wait any longer. You can right now in this moment turn to Jesus. You can repent of your sins and, you, and your shortcomings and, and you can just say something like this to him. It doesn't have to be word for word. There's no magic formula, but you can just turn to him and say, Lord, 
I trust you. I, I put my faith in you, Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to turn now towards you and away from sin and to follow you. This is how you and I are in Christ. And so again, how do we receive these blessings and who are these blessings for? They are for those in Christ. Let's go to the second question and that is this. If we are in fact in Christ, if we are a follower of Jesus, how should we respond to all of these blessings? Well, another phrase that Paul repeated multiple times throughout this section, in fact, three different times in verse six, verse 12 and verse 14, is Paul says this, to the praise of his glory. How are you and I to respond to who God is and what he has done for us? We are to praise and to worship him. We are to praise him for his glory. We are to praise him for his grace. In other words, as the title of today's message laid out for us, we are to bless because we've been blessed. God has blessed us, and so in response, we are to bless him back. And how are you and I to bless a God who has everything and needs nothing? Just to simply praise him, to live a life that's worthy of our calling, to worship him with everything that we are and everything that we have. You see, we've talked about a lot of doctrine, a lot of complicated uh, theological truths, but I really love what James Montgomery Boyce said when talking about this section. He said, doctrine, if it is rightly understood, leads to doxology. If we discover who God is and what he has done for us, we will praise him. You see, we entitled this series, There Is More. And what I want you to know this morning as we kick off this uh, book, this letter of Ephesians, is that God is more glorious than you realize. He's bigger than you can imagine. He's more kind. He's more gracious than you think. And he is more worthy of our praise and our worship than we realize. And so I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come back up. And we're actually going to sing a new song this morning called King of Kings. I was on a prayer walk on Thursday, and, and I was just thinking about the message. And, and as I did, the, the, the uh, chorus of this song popped into my mind. And it's just a powerful song because it, it recognizes the, the work of the Trinity in salvation. And it just responds by praising him. And so uh, as you catch on to the, the lyrics here, I just invite you to join in with us and to sing. I want you to just dial in on this moment. What is our proper response to who God is and what he has done? It is to worship him. It is to praise him. And so let's do that now together as a body. But before we do, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, these truths, as it talks about it later on in chapter one, we can only fully know and appreciate these through the power of the Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, as we try now in our own frailty and weakness, as we try to respond to, to what you've done for us, God, pray that you would help us. Help us to see the riches of the gospel. We are in fact richer than we think, Lord. We have been blessed. And so help us to respond and to bless you back in Jesus' name.